and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. Today, the whole crew is here. We have Andy. Hi, everyone. Jara. Hello. And Grace. Hey, super fans. Not really. Casual <laughs> listeners. How's it going? And our very special guest, Erica Massey. Hey, I'm happy to be here. So Erica is a, a PhD student in English and studies Star Trek fan fiction. So that's what we're here to talk about today. Yeah, should be exciting. So wait, you <laughs> study Star Trek fan fiction as like your academic study? Uh, so I'm a 20th and 21st century literature PhD student technically. Ooh. However, uh, I do specialize in fan works and fandom my dissertation will be about fan works as relevant sources of literature. And currently it looks like Star Trek will be the focus of that dissertation. Oh, that's awesome. I think so. My research is very entertaining anyway. <laughs> you are living a dream there. I really am. <laughs> <laughs> so we have our usual little bits of housekeeping to go over before we get into our main topic, which are our Patreon First of all, uh, Patreon is a platform that basically instead of a Kickstarter, which is a one-time donation, allows you to make a regular contribution anywhere from $1 to as much as you want to give to help us out in keeping the show going. And that helps us to buy new equipment and to promote the show and to publish our new blog, which is our other bit of housekeeping. Uh, but first, if you'd like to contribute, you can go over to patreon.com slash women at warp. And one of our new Patreon rewards is to watch along episodes with us so you can get some live commentary on episodes like Sub Rosa. Which is an experience, let me tell you. <laughs> and as I mentioned, we launched our blog in January. We're currently publishing one original post every week as well as a cross post or a review from, from a member of the crew. And our next Patreon goal is to get that up to two original posts per week. So you can check out our blog over on the website at womenatwarp.com. And get excited! <laughs> it's been absolutely awesome so far. Yeah. I'm blown away right now. Yeah, for sure. And if you have a post that you want to contribute, we've had a ton of pitches, um, but we still are absolutely interested in hearing from you and um, or if you have something you've written elsewhere that you think would be good to reshare on our blog then uh, flip us a note too you can find all the contribution information on our site women at warp.com awesome so today we're going to be talking about fan fiction of course the but the topic is so big we knew we had to split it up and in the future we are planning to do more episodes but today we're talking about I guess what we can call pre-internet fan fiction. Proto-fiction, if you will. <laughs> and uh, the approximate date range here is until 1990, which is the year that Alt-Star Trek Creative, the news group, was founded. Of course, we're going to be talking mostly about fanzines, which, you know, existed past 1990, of course, so there might be some overlap. But in general, we're going to be talking about 1966 to 1989 today. The badlands of the fanfic era. The primordial fix, if you will. <laughs> I personally think this time period is really interesting because it was so much more difficult to find and distribute this content. You know, you either saw an ad in the back of a magazine, like you might see an ad in Starlog, of all places, for a fanzine, or you'd come across them at conventions and sort of stumble upon this community that existed. And it's, you know, when I was a kid getting into fanfic, it was so much easier to just type it into, like Google didn't exist, Alta Vista, <laughs> and find full websites on on pairings right well and from you know a academic standpoint that actually makes it very difficult to study 
because there aren't any, you know, online archives that you can go look at. You actually have to find people that have print copies of, you know, these original work, which, you know, thankfully, at least people going to conventions, usually, you know, they'll, they'll have access to that. And so then they can contact me and, you know, arduously scan some, you know, copies in of like an original grep or something and send to me. Um, but it definitely makes researching it very tricky and sometimes incredibly frustrating. <laughs> and the act of making them must have been very difficult also. The fact that a lot of these zines would have been printed at home, written at home, produced at mm -hmm. home, it definitely would have been a ma major labor of love to get all that done. Yeah, and, and it was a significant effort to bring together people who were illustrating them and then writing for them, because um, often they weren't, you know, in the same place. So people would have to find a way to uh, get their artistic representations that accompanied poetry or articles to the person printing it. So there was there was a significant amount of work, you know, primarily done by women to, to get these things published. That's I mean, they had my respect for sure. <laughs> ah, no kidding. So Erica, what made you want to look at fan fiction as an area of study? Uh, so I actually, my interest started with fandom in general. I was looking at comic books. And I mean, especially like within the current political climate, you get very interesting um, depictions historically of what was happening socially and politically from comic books, right? And so that was that was sort of my my end. Uh, but when I started doing more research online in terms of comic book fandoms, I sort of needed to backtrack to figure out, like, how did fandom really begin? Uh, specifically, how did fandom interactions begin? Because I was I was kind of jumping into it in the middle of the river, right? And I needed to go back to the source. And pretty much universally, that source was Star Trek. And I, of course, had been a huge fan as a kid because my parents raised me on Star Trek, so I at least had the, the necessary foundation. You had the proper upbringing, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, they raised me well. <laughs> and so I was able to, through some connections that I made online, naturally, uh, I was able to get in touch with people who had been around for sort of the inception of the Star Trek fandom, who had, again, access to early copies of like Spockanalia or T-negative um, that they didn't mind sharing with me. And it just, it just sort of grew from there. I never actually intended to like make this my, my focus of study. Uh, but suddenly by the end of my first year as a PhD student, I had just this massive amount of information that was fascinating and, and no one had ever really done much with before. So I, I just kind of ran with it. <laughs> That's as good a way to start as any. Yeah. Very cool. There are some things that, if you don't read fanfic, you might not be familiar with. If you're not in the know. Right. And um, the the descriptions of stories are, generally include the relationship that's being focused on. And there is an abbreviation, so we'll use the infamous Kirk and Spock as, as our example. And if we're describing a platonic relationship in this story... Uh, the descriptor would be K ampersand S. And if we're describing a romantic relationship, it would be K slash S. And that's actually where the term slash fiction or slash fic came from, which I believe started as a general representation of a romantic or sexual story and has pretty much come to mean almost exclusively male-male uh, romantic relationships. Right. The distinction now is is if you have a female-female relationship, that is femme-slash. Yeah, but you're right that it didn't always used to mean same sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that has evolved. Yeah, at the, at the beginning of the term, it meant any kind of sexual relationship. One of the things that I thought really was really interesting when I was reading um, Camille Bacon-Smith's Enterprising Women, which is a cool academic book on women in early fandom was that there seemed to be kind of a divide in the community about with some authors being worried that people writing any like sexual fiction and then particularly 
woman woman or man man were, were would like disgrace the fanfic community. Did you encounter any of that sort of divide? Oh, absolutely. The general consensus to me is that it was viewed as a very black and white issue. People either belonged to publications that um, encouraged uh, having sexual articles, pictures, etc., or they denied it entirely. And, and that tended to be the case of individuals within the fandom as well. They either um, supported it or they thought that it was completely unacceptable um, and, and even shameful for the fandom as a whole and, and you know, didn't appreciate that there were, there were publications that were entirely dedicated, in fact, to uh, you know, more sexual stories and pictures like Grep. And, and there was a lot of dissent within the fandom on how exactly to handle that, right? Be, because there was quite a bit of a d- disagreement on, on what should and should not be published uh, in terms of what would make the fandom look good or bad as a whole. Was it all of the explicit material or anything that just wasn't heterosexual? That's kind of a difficult question to answer because for the most part, there, so in the beginning, before any of the Kirk and Spock slash became very well known, um, there were a lot of self-insert written pieces where, you know, this woman who anyone can identify with, you know, that is a woman has a relationship usually with either Spock or Kirk. And uh, originally they were just seen as like sort of silly and didn't get any sort of respect um, that a lot of the more serious like articles and interviews and that sort of thing, you know, got, but it was seen, seen as, as mostly harmless, right? Um, whereas then it's my understanding that when there became a degree of, you know, homosexual relationships that were being represented, especially between two of the main male characters, that is when dissent really started to grow. And that is when the focus became, we shouldn't be talking about um, you know, these sexual, these explicit situations. Um, and so it's, it's difficult to say whether or not that, you know, entirely coincided um, with these non-heterosexual relationships. Um, but previously, again, it was just seen as something kind of silly but harmless. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to determine, and I've spoken to different people who have different opinions. Um, I, so I can't, I can't really answer that entirely. I'm curious about, do you think that the, those attitudes have changed over time? Because when we, I think, largely think and talk about fan fiction today, of course, there's a lot of non-sexually explicit fan fiction or non-sexual fan fiction. But I think that the sexual fan fiction is generally like a lot more accepted and even considered as like the stereotype of what fan fiction is. So I wonder if people who may have like objected to it at the time have changed their views at all, just kind of seeing that. Seeing the light. <laughs> so I-, I can say that that's definitely the case for some people. Um, I uh, I gave a presentation at DragonCon um, last year in Atlanta and I had two women um, who approached me afterward uh, who actually admitted that when they first became part of the fandom, um, they were people who, who did not at all support um, any kind of explicit sexual relationship between Kirk and Spock. They thought that it was this betrayal um, of the canon of the series, um, and they were very vocal against it, right? Um, but they said that as times changed, they realized that it wasn't actually the way that they felt personally, it was the influence of, you know, external forces, um, you know, being in the time that they were, that were influencing their opinions. And in fact, they both said that they are members of um, Archive of Our Own, AO3, um, and have multiple saved bookmarks and their favorites of, (laughs) you know, uh, fic where Kirk and Spock are, you know, madly in love. So I I can say that at least a a small subset, you know, that I've spoken to have certainly changed their mind. But um, I think it's a lot more to do with like the the sociopolitical um, situation in general, um, being more accepting currently. Do you think the concern about how this would make fandom look had anything to do with the fact that fans knew that the creators were reading the zines, at least Spock and Alia? 
Yeah. So what's interesting about the zines is that especially some of the first ones, um, they they were very well known within fandom, but also within, you know, creators of the original content, right? I mean, you had Roddenberry writing letters um, and doing interviews and, and cast and crew writing letters and doing interviews for these zines, talking about them in interviews um, with larger press. Um, and so when the original zines went from being less about just sort of surrounding material and, and articles and the occasional poem, and they started to branch out into fiction works and um, uh, fan art that, you know, may or may not be a little racy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, all art gets there eventually. There became this concern of, well, what if this very close relationship, this very friendly relationship that we have with the original content creators, what if they no longer want to be associated with us because we're doing things that are are a little bit embarrassing or a little bit not socially acceptable, right? Um, which, again, was where this sudden disconnect occurred uh, when especially Kirk slash Spock um, fic started to be produced um, in, in large quantities. <laughs> so I mentioned it, but I'll give a little bit of history on that zine. Spockanalia was the first all-Star Trek fanzine, and according to uh, fan lore, the first media fanzine. Uh, so all based wow. on a TV show rather than any original content. And the first issue was in September 1969, and there were five issues over three years. And this was a zine that was more uh, nonfiction. It was stories and poems, articles, art, and letters that, you know, Roddenberry even called required reading for every new writer and for anyone who makes decisions on show policy. And then during uh, threats of cancellation for the show, Roddenberry was using the existence of Spockanalia and its popularity as an example of the show's popularity nationwide in interviews to sort of you know bolster his his bid well for why renewal. not <laughs> yeah well it was a valuable resource of yeah. course so erica i um we we touched on this a little bit but i'm wondering if you could maybe help shed a bit more light on the process of producing a fanzine um both in terms of like the technology or how they would distribute fanzines but also if you know just say okay so me I'm like 12 years old. I guess probably I would have been older if we're looking at theoretical past life me. Um, but like I got into fan fiction, reading fan fiction on the internet. But just say I was 25 and I go to my first convention in the early 1970s or late 1960s. Um, how do I find out about these fanzines and possibly get to write for one of them? So it kind of depended on where you were located, um, because some of the publications that I found were literally so insular um, that it was just someone was, you know, printing it at their office where they worked as a secretary during the day um, and were hoping they wouldn't get caught, you know. Um, <laughs> I can't relate to that at all. I definitely never scanned anything and sent it to Jara at work. Never. <laughs> So, I mean, some of them were, were very, I'm not going to say sloppily because that does them a disservice, but they were certainly not professionally made. Mm -hmm. um, they, they were uh, essentially just, um, you know, typed up on uh, whatever method you had, whether it was, uh, you know, a typewriter or, <laughs> um, you know, something slightly, slightly more advanced. Um, and, and pictures would be... Uh, scanned um often and again some people were were doing these within an office environment and they would only make like you know 50 copies and that would that would be their run you know um because it was very difficult again to connect with people in this way so if you were in a small town um you were you were very reliant on whoever was in your town who you know enjoyed reading uh, this sort of material um, some of the larger ones, they would actually, you know, um, take to a press. Uh, but again, they had to gather articles. And so in larger cities, um, you would have people who uh, 
essentially would be responsible for, you know, well, I'm going to, I'm going to make the art and, you know, she is going to write this poem that will accompany it on the opposite page. Um, and they would have someone then take this material all to a press, make multiple copies, um, bind it usually in, in whatever way was uh, most cost effective. Um, but there was, there was a wide range of how these were produced, um, purely because there was no, you know, online method of um, spreading the word to potential readers. Uh, and eventually that problem was uh, somewhat solved by mailing lists um, for larger publications where you would actually be able to um, sign up, you know, in, in print uh, like you would for any other magazine, right, where you would mail in the little card. Um, and then that would give them a good idea of, and of course this was done weeks in advance, so that then they would have an idea of um, how many they needed to print and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, the, the process, like I said, I've spoken to a couple different people and it varies significantly. <laughs> yeah, I have an awesome uh, older fanzine called Southern Star that is themed kind of around the Romulan commander from the Enterprise incident and Spock and a bit of Kirk and a lot of vampires and werewolves. Like you do, like you do. And uh, it, there's, uh, I got it and I immediately noticed like how tiny the print was. And there's a note that says basically like, sorry, we got twice as much material as we expected we were going to get for this, but we didn't have any more budget. So we just like mimeographed it all at 50% the size. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, definitely a lot of admiration for just the amount of work that went into coordinating and distributing things. I also, when I was reading Enterprising Women, I noticed that um, there was some discussion about how some groups didn't actually want their um, they didn't always put together a zine, but like sometimes just a circle to read each other's stories, um, or, you know, a small zine and they didn't want the mailing list to always be that big because they were very concerned about anonymity, even using pen names, um, because of this, like, I mean, if you can imagine people might feel like a bit self-conscious sharing they write fan fiction today and how it would be so much different back then when it's was so much such a smaller thing and when science fiction fandom didn't have the mainstream acceptance it does. Right. Well, well, and it can even be dangerous for some people, um, depending again on, on where they were located. I spoke to one woman, um, who said that she was living in Montana, uh, at the, at the time period in which she was a, a significant fan and contributor, at least within her very, again, insular community. Um, and they would have meetings uh, around, I think she said like once a month, um, but they they were like very secretive. And I'm talking like mafia secretive, like <laughs> they, because they were genuinely concerned for their safety because they were writing explicit homosexual works, um, which in Montana during that time period would not just be frowned upon, but, um, you know, taken probably violently depending on who encountered it right right um so and of course again she said you know we we did it because we were sort of and actually a lot of the members of her little community were part um of the lgbtq uh community um and that was sort of their outlet um and so they themselves were uh very apprehensive about meeting in groups right um but they said that they did it anyway because they loved the fandom and that it was this way for them to express themselves that they hadn't encountered before. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right that in, in a lot of cases, and again, what makes my research difficult is that, you know, you, you don't have a, a physical record, even, you know, a physical record, much less an online record of how many countless, probably hundreds of little tiny meetings like that occurred. Um, in which people people were were bringing these creative influences to the fandom. And see, I thought I was a dedicated fit reader reading <laughs> like every day, but actually going to somebody's house and like reading it out loud to each other that is next level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very impressive. Right. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for my uh my predecessors. <laughs> <laughs> 
I want to jump back real quick to the sheer amount of work involved. I have uh, several fanzines from the early TNG years. So this is, you know, towards the end when the technology for for this was pretty much as good as it was going to get. But there are several zines in which people were just going out and finding articles and reviews on the actor's past performances. So there was someone who went and like sat in front of a microfiche at a library for hours on end to get this information to photocopy it for the zine. Mm, talk about dedication. Yeah, and you, you flip through it and you can absolutely see that people just printed out their finished product project or typed it up and sent it to whoever was going to put this together because every other page is in a different font. It's all formatted differently. No. You know, it's it's but it it feels so like special because of how organic it is in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Fandom will find a way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Fandom and ladies who want to read dirty Kirk Spock stories. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's the other thing is, like, how how much of this section, because I know now the fic writing community is overwhelmingly women. Female, yes, that's true. And, and it was at that time as well? Um. So what's really interesting is that fandom in general um, was and pretty much always has been and continues to this day to be very evenly split in terms of gender. Um, However, men are primarily responsible for talking about canon and as it exists, not trying to expand upon it, right? So they're the ones, like if you're talking modern day, they're the ones that are like on Reddit streams Uh, talking about, like, meta, right? Um, Whereas women don't feel as if the series is complete as is, right? They want more, and they believe that there is more, and and this has always been the case. Uh, And so women are the hugely creative productors um, within fandom. They're the ones who are, again, producing um, something that the canon does not give you, or I would even hazard to say something that the canon lacks. Um, and they're trying to make up for that lack. And in doing so, they're creating, you know, whether it be art or fiction or poetry, um, they're creating something that supplements canon, right? Um, and so the in terms of creativity, it is an it has always been overwhelmingly female, at least in the Star Trek um, fandom. And I, th- I think that that uh, says a little something, uh, considering that that, is a, that that is a theme that has continued, right? Um, that women are creative and powerful influences, right? Yeah, I heard once somebody break it down as men are the collectors and protectors of canon. So, like, you have... <laughs> Whether the, you asked for it or not. Correct, exactly. <laughs> That's kind of where I'm going here. But, like, you know, the men are the ones that will own every ship mm-hmm. and you know really dive deep into what's already there and collect facts you know that sort of thing and then women are the ones that are pushing the boundaries which might be one of the reasons why there is sometimes a clash between the two types of fandom and why we often hear the whole idea of real fans like right when I started first time trekking, I was actually surprised that I didn't get more gatekeeping than I mm-hmm. did, um, because I was I I have never been the kind of fan that's going to remember everybody's name, or who's going to remember you know the star date. I still don't understand star dates, <laughs> you know. So every every fan that goes into loving something loves it in their own way and values a different section Mm -hmm. of it so like for me star trek i love star trek because of the social justice and the characters that sort of thing other people love the hard sci-fi and the ships you know yeah it's not a right or wrong but i do sometimes see conflicts between those kinds of fandom and i've always found it really interesting how gendered it tends to be yeah well and i think and maybe this is overly optimistic of me but i think at least in my experience i've found that um fandom spaces are getting a lot better about bridging that gap and showing mutual respect, um, whether it be, you know, 
between a, a more of an archivist kind of person or someone who is creative and, and is making new material, right? Um, so kind of like you said, you were surprised that there, there were um, not as many gatekeepers. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised uh, as well when I started to really get into this, um, particularly when I was trying to find people to talk to, uh, though primarily the people I'm talking to are indeed women. <laughs> Um, considering, you know, the, the constraints of my research. Although I will say too, that when I was first started, I didn't ever, I, and I very specifically, because I'm used to being a woman on the internet, very specifically did not have my name on it and I did not have a gender on it. So probably for the first year or so, people kept assuming I was a, a guy. That might have had something to do with it. By the time that I was, you know, doing Women at Warp and actually going <laughs> on to podcasts and people started knowing my name and a little bit more about me personally, I started get, getting a little bit more. But in general, track fandom has been pretty open to me, which I've always appreciated. I think that you mentioned something there in passing, Erica, that is just important to highlight is this idea that, like, women are filling in what isn't there. Um, And maybe that helps to explain part of the gaps and also maybe why men are more invested in upholding canon. It's like maybe, I'm sure not consciously, um, but it's easier to be satisfied with what, with the canon when you, like, you see yourself represented throughout it in complex ways. You can find characters to resonate with. And I think that... um, that goes back to a bit the point about um, women writing this and uh, particularly this whole question of, I hope I'm not like getting too far ahead of us, but this whole question of why do straight women want to read or write slash fic? Because I know a lot of people who have not interacted with the fiction, the fic community who make an assumption that it must be gay writers writing slash fic, um, which is actually not always the case. Yeah. We were actually having, sorry, we were having a discussion at Star Trek Las Vegas this past year um, about fan fiction and were asked exactly that question. Why would a straight woman want to read or write slash fic? Well, actually, the question started out with, um, I believe, why can't gay fan fiction writers just like make up their own pairings instead of changing the sexuality of the characters that are straight in canon. So first we had to correct that, you know, there's a lot of things in there, but one of the things is that actually it's not just queer authors who are writing slash fiction. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about so I I obviously you can't get like a a solid percentage pie chart breakdown of you know historically who was writing what um, you can get a, a better idea of that currently um, and and the latest statistics um, at least the most inclusive ones that I've found were from a um, archive of our own census that uh, occurred in December of two thousand thirteen. Um, And it's essentially said that uh, 45% of slash across the board, not just Star Trek, but any kind of male, male slash fan fiction, uh, around 40% was written by heterosexual women. Um, Then another 30% was written by by pansexual or otherwise um, queer identifying women. Uh, another 10% was written by lesbian women. Uh, and then the rest of the breakdown was all um, men uh, who identified as straight, men who identified, again, as um, bi or otherwise queer, and then men who identified as homosexual. But what is interesting is that there was only 5% of that entire pie chart was men who identified as homosexual. Um, and so... Primarily, and again, this is this is currently, and I can't really speak for the past, um, but currently there is a an overwhelming number of women, um, but b the majority is indeed you know straight women with with the very close second uh, to that being um, bisexual 
or queer identifying women. Um, and there's a lot of reasons, and this is a question that I'm still investigating, uh, but there's a lot of reasons that I've been given um, by both, you know, queer women, which is a little easier to understand because they're, uh, again, sort of like you said, making characters that they at least can identify with, even if it's not a character that shares their gender. Um, but if we're speaking just specifically of heterosexual women writing slash, the two primary responses that I get from people when I ask about this um, is firstly, um, that there is a degree of freedom in writing to male characters uh, because there are no constraints that they feel personally, right? Because they don't actually identify with either one of them. And so it allows them to be more creative um, in their writing. Uh, the other response that I tend to get um, is, and usually it's said with a little bit of derision, um, is that if these mass-produced pieces of media had better female characters, um, perhaps they would write heterosexual relationships. But unfortunately, um, many people find that the most compelling relationships, the relationships that have the most um, backstory and character development, are all between men. Um, and so it is, it is easier and even perhaps more logical um, for people to choose to write relationships um, in that way. Um, now, you can't discount that there is often um, fetishization uh, occurring, like it is a problem. Um, however, uh, again, I think, I think that we are sort of as a whole fandom as a whole recognizing this and trying to combat it in a way that that people who um, are actually queer are able to um, take precedent over uh, the the voices that that may overshadow them yeah like i'm I'm a, a queer woman who writes slash fic um, yeah. one, and the the second reason is the one that I would say if if somebody asked me why well and I only want write one ship so I mean <laughs> take it that way like I've written one fic so there's there's not a lot of variety there but the reason I'm writing that particular ship and that particular fic is because those were the characters that I liked the best so it didn't have anything to do with like oh I really want to see male male it was those were the two characters that i thought there was a story for right and i've actually done some research because i found that very compelling um and again it was probably the predominant um answer that i've received in in talking to multiple people about this um but i i went and i looked again archive of our own has so handy. <laughs> yeah, you can search all of the, the ships. It's a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful thing. It's the, the interface is incredibly user friendly. <laughs> <laughs> but I went and I looked at some of the most popular ships currently that were male male ships slash ships. Uh, and what's interesting is that there's actually a large number of um, gender swapped, whether they're both women now in the story or whether one of them is gender swapped so that one of them is a woman and one of them is a man, making them a heterosexual couple. Um, but people don't seem to discriminate between um, gender swapped fix, regardless of, you know, if, if both are swapped or if just one is swapped, and fix that keep them with their um, original gender. Uh, and I think the reason for that is, is sort of what you're talking about. It's that they like the character and they don't particularly care in many cases what gender the character is. They just think that there's a compelling reason for those characters to be together regardless, right? Um, which I, th I think that's, that's valid. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I... I think that there is sort of a, a little bit of an interesting, contra I don't know if it's a contradiction, but, you know, I would argue that writing slash fic and distributing slash fic, especially in the pre-internet era, was like an inherently political act because oh, it yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> spreads um, acceptance. And um, even if that is not 
the intent. And in uh, Enterprising Women, uh, Camille Bacon-Smith wrote, fanzineers don't gather in each other's homes and hotels around the country to march on the male heterosexual bastions and demand their (laughs) rightful place. They come together for mutual healing, for protecting from the outside, and to ponder the most pressing questions in their lives. Who am I? What do I really want? Why can't I have it? Why does life hurt so much? Um, So I thought that that was sort of an interesting way of looking at this whole I guess it's like the personal is political, that that might not be the reason that you're writing yeah. it, but the the outcome is political. It brings to mind, too, the the idea that we just talk about in media, in that they're, especially, you know, if we're talking about the original series, the majority of the main characters are men. The overwhelming majority of the main yeah. characters are men. So there is always a character for, or almost always a character for a a male audience member to identify with who is the same gender. Whereas women growing up with this kind of media are often identifying with male characters instead of the one or two (laughs) women on the show. Who may or may not have actual personalities. Right. Right. (laughs) So there are, especially we hear from a lot of women who grew up with TOS who identify with Spock in particular Mm -hmm. as sort of being like the fish out of water right which i'm sure a lot of us can identify with but um and i think that's that's coming into play too in fanfic and um leslie fish who is a folk artist said it's the only way we can be one and have the other so if you're Ooh. identifying with one of the characters and then having relationship with another but they both happen to be male there's still like a self insert into that story And uh, she also said, our culture is so thoroughly denigrates the personalities of women that women can't imagine themselves as heroic characters unless they imagine themselves as male. And and I think, I mean, it was a problem then, and I think it's still a problem now um, within specifically the the sci-fi genre, where women are not used as multidimensional characters. They're used as sort of these tools within um, male homosocial bonds. And so you have female characters that that are not compelling as characters because um, they're, even if it's it's not like a malicious, intentional thing by the writer, um, they, they aren't being given... Um, you know, their own storyline, their, their own growth. They're just, they're being used in terms of this. And again, it's supposed to be a, a homosocial relationship for these men to become, you know, better friends and to bond and, you know, all of these, you know, bro kind of things. However, in doing that, the, the creators are unintentionally creating this very compelling backstory, this very compelling reason um, for these these characters to be together. And, and like you're saying, the women are going to relate like as human beings more to that relationship than they are to something that is very shallow um, and, and pithy almost, right? When you have these female characters that are usually introduced very quickly um, as, oh, romantic interest, right? Um, yeah. So I want to talk about Grup. Oh, yay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you threw out the title a couple times before. Grup is a fanzine. It lasted six issues from 73 to 78. And the title is, of course, a reference to the episode Miri, in which grown-ups are Grups. <laughs> and yeah, it is... Um, It included in its third issue in 1974, the first published, and that's important, uh, Kirk Spock story called A Fragment Out of Time. Yes. And that also had the very first published, (laughs) important (laughs) distinction, um, piece of explicit fan art as well. Though, admittedly, I have have a scan of it, and it's very hard to tell what's happening. (laughs) The, the artist um, and, in fact, the writer of A Fragment Out of Time both had to come back the following uh, issue and clarify that, yes, indeed, this, this is what's happening, and not only the story and, and the picture, because they were both incredibly vague. Um, and, 
and very like poetic in terms of the story. So it was kind of difficult. Like you could, you could read it as a multitude of (laughs) different interpretations. Right. Um, But yes, so that, that is uh, a very important thing to note um, because they were, and it happened in the same issue. You had the first published uh, explicit fan art and the first published uh, explicit fan story. And published is such an important distinction there because before this, there were stories and art distributed among friends. And I don't have any information on the first art. Maybe you do, Erica. But the first story is presumed to be uh, The Ring of Sochern, mm-hmm. written by Jennifer Guttridge and approximately dated in 67 or 68. Yes. And I... Believe me, I have tried to figure out uh, exactly when that was and to get a copy of it, but I have not been able to actually get a copy of it. I've only heard word of mouth what it was about. Um, and so, yeah, if, if anyone wants to hook me up with that, let me know. <laughs> Putting out the call to our listeners. But no, I, I would agree. Um, assuming that it is 1967 or 1968, it, it predates any published um slash content. So I, for now, I'd say, yeah, that's accurate. Um, as for fan art, um, I was able to speak to a couple people who, again, had these more like very insular, like only 12, 13 people were involved. Um, they would print like 20 copies of an issue and they didn't even have a name for their issue. Um, but I've found smaller publications like that, that were making, um, fan art and, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say explicit, but um, risque poetry <laughs> uh, about Kirk and Spock uh, that predates that. Um, again, I haven't been able to find any actual copies or um, scans, though. So, when I'm thinking about like you doing all of this academic research, and it's practically like archaeology. Trying to find all of these primary source documents from the late 60s. Can you imagine being in the late 60s and sitting down and being like, okay, Kirk and Spock. (laughs) And like writing it out and not realizing that you're actually going to be a part of history and someday somebody's going to be writing their dissertation on your, you know, fanfic you wrote. And it makes me think about like... 50 years from now, people are going to be like, so Tumblr in 2017 era really was dominated and like writing these amazing, you know, academic papers about fandom uh, the way it is now. You have to wonder. You really do. Though I, I do envy whoever is doing that in the future a little bit because they will have the opposite problem. Of <laughs> yeah, they will have too much. So much archived material online, easily searchable at their fingertips. <laughs> but I mean, I guess on the plus side is that, you know, because the stuff isn't available online, it forces you to go out and actually talk to the people who created the stuff. Whereas, you know, right. no one's going to be able to figure out who, like sleeping TARDIS dash 32 <laughs> on Tumblr was. Um, and um, I think that that's an important part. And we we talked a bit about that, but we're also planning on doing a future episode where we have a bit of like an intergenerational discussion of fic authors. Um, that would be fascinating, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I've definitely uh, made contact with people who I never would have uh you know, otherwise. Um, and it's strange because I've actually built pretty good online relationships with people who are like older than my parents. And that's a little odd for me because then, you know, I bring up, oh yeah, I was talking to, you know, Karen the other day and she's, you know, retired and lives in Florida and I'm, you know, a 25 year old PhD student. And so it, it gives you like a very diverse range of interactions that you definitely wouldn't get just from purely looking at online archives. So there is a very like human dimension of this and you get their stories too, because unlike us, where we have the ability to just 
you know, post something online out into the ether without really putting a lot of effort into it. I mean, obviously there is effort, but not like physical, like production effort in terms of, you know, printing it and there's not as much of an intensive commitment to it. Right. Um, Whereas a lot of the people that I speak to who were involved in the inception of these zines, um, you know, they were trying to again like print print out their 25 copies like at the end of the uh at the end of the work day and then you know go pick up their kid from school and honey don't sit on the manuscripts and you know like you get these very wonderful stories and sometimes kind of heartbreaking stories in the case of people who had to you know hide their fandom involvement because of where they were located um that you just you don't get in a in an entirely digital um, world like we have now. When I started out in fanfic, I was probably too young to be in fanfic, and it it was in the <laughs> it was in the digital age. But there were there were still listservs and smaller insulated groups, and it was it's certainly multi generational. The one in particular that I'm thinking about, and several of the women that I have met through fan fiction have become very dear friends to me and mentors in some way. And I think the fact that there aren't as many of those smaller groups or those listservs around anymore is is kind of sad. I mean, there are, are circles that form, but it's it doesn't feel the same to me when you just go to AO3 and start searching for stories. Yeah, I would say that AO3 doesn't foster that, but Tumblr does. Tumblr definitely does. Yeah. Because I have, I have at least two or three people that when I'm finished with a chapter, they are reading it for me. And there is definitely a community. It's just, I, I probably not as, I don't know, um, intimate as maybe yours was. But I, I do think that that still is happening in just a different form. Yeah, this was definitely, what, what I'm thinking about was through email and it was you know, real names and locations and people mailed each other things. This was like before the internet was terrifying, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) But um, Jerry, you had mentioned uh, earlier to, I think off, off mic, that there was a whole section in Enterprising Women about how women would mentor each other into this fanfic community. Yeah, um, I mean, there was a discussion of the author of the book herself when she started doing her research. Um, This was in, I think, the 80s, uh, late 80s. Um, So she was, it might have been early 90s, but um, she was, you know, consuming some of the same content. And uh, actually, yeah, it was for sure 90s. (laughs) Sorry. So, uh, (laughs) but the author herself talks about you know, connecting with some people and having them take her to conventions and show her the tables where they sell the zines and pointing out like, this one is a good one. Uh, this one is all about this relationship. Wow. Um, and uh, this was some of what, we, you know, I was talking about before about um, certain people would be less comfortable with the sexual content. So I remember she was saying the person who took her in the first place was disapproving of mm-hmm. um, the sexual zines and would sort of point out like, oh, these are the ones you want to pay attention to and don't pay attention to those ones. Um, so there was that aspect. And like then, you know, then maybe you would get invited to like a living room zine making session or something like that wow i'd hate to have that woman take a look at like lists of tags on ao3 (laughs) (laughs) but um i mean it's still some of that still happens today but i think you're right sue like there's a there's definitely less of that direct mentorship but certainly you know when um, I've been to conventions. I've been very grateful for, you know, if it's my first convention, for that friendly person who spots me looking around being totally terrified and being like, here's the things you have to check out. Here's my tips for, you know, make sure you have comfy shoes and don't forget your water <laughs> bottle and that kind of thing. And so there is still some of that st- uh, stuff happening, but... Yeah, um, nerd girls got to look out for each other. Yeah. Right, and the thing that happened to me with this listserv was like, It wasn't just mentoring in fandom. It was like I'm having a work-related crisis and I don't know what to do next in my life. Can you get on the phone for an hour? Like it was that sort of thing that happened with these relationships. And I feel like it, it was just, I hit it at the right time that it became really special. 
And that's the Picard Crusher fandom, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm not at all surprised that they are uh, so supportive <laughs> and wonderful. This also just reminded me of um, this. So Grace and I were both Geek Girl Con a couple years ago, and there was a, a great panel called Geek Elders Speak, it where they had a lot of these panel. original authors and um, talking about how much that was even more important in a time when you couldn't always count on, not that you can today, but even less um, on, say, your male relatives um, supporting you doing this. And one of the women on the panel told a story about um, a woman whose husband tried to have her committed for going to conventions. Right. And that... Uh, she basically was able to like flee her abusive marriage with the help of these friends that she had made through conventions and fiction writing. So it's um, really, you know, you can really see how much of a lifeline that would have been when, you know, you can't, you couldn't just take it for granted that it's something you could safely do. Like you can to an extent, a greater extent now. Right. Well, and, and I think that that's, important in terms of where Tumblr comes in to the dynamic currently, um, because there's still very much relationships like that. Um, And perhaps I misspoke before when I said that you can't find it in the digital age, because you can on Tumblr. (laughs) Um, Because I know that there are, at least in the fandoms to which I currently belong, there are, you know, the people that are kind of known as like the fandom mom, right, on Tumblr. And they don't, they aren't just the mom in terms of like, oh, come child, let me tell you about canon or, you know, (laughs) something like that. Let me tell you days of the elder internet. (laughs) But it's it's also like, you know, I'm confused about my sexuality and I don't think my parents are going to support me. Can you talk me through this? Or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm leaving for college and I'm really anxious because I'm going to be somewhere where I've never been before. And like, how do I handle this? You know, and so it's it's this it's the same kind of real life issues where you have this person who is, you know, older and more knowledgeable, who you have the connection of fandom to inspire trust. Right. Yeah. Um, which I think is is a really cool thing um, that regardless of if you're in the Star Trek fandom or the you know Avengers fandom, you're going to find someone like that, um, which is which is pretty neat. Fandom is amazing like that. Yeah, fandom's great. <laughs> so I have a, like two more facts that I want to make sure to throw out, and then we'll see if there's anything we haven't talked about that anybody else wants to bring up. But I just want to mention that the first all Kirk Spock anthology fanzine uh, was called Thrust. Yes, you heard me correctly. Yeah, it was. (laughs) Uh, The first episode was in 1978, and it had a pretty explicit cover, sort of done in like a stained glass kind of aesthetic. Yes, it was considered highly blasphemous. I love it. It, It's kind of amazing. Um, Google it. I, I encourage you. (laughs) But by the year 2000, there had been over 500 Kirksbox zines published. Not stories, zines. Zines, yeah. That's a lot of committed fans. Astounding. Yeah. Yeah. And granted, a lot of those probably didn't have more than like one or two runs, but that's still an amazing amount of dedication. It really is. Do we have any final thoughts or questions or things from anyone else final thought is that fan fiction is awesome (laughs) final thought fan fiction is nothing to sniff at (laughs) unless you're like sniffing for a good fic then sniff away by all means (laughs) absolutely you're gonna find it out there i mean like the whole point of my thesis is that is that fan fiction you know rather than being derided as as something um, less than canon, right? That we should appreciate it because it has this really vivid, awesome history yeah. Um, yeah. of creativity, especially, you know, by women who historically haven't been appreciated for that kind of creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think it's a very socially relevant form of literature and we should respect it as such. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> respect the fans and their art. This has been absolutely fantastic. Erica, if people want to reach out to you, is there somewhere online that they can find you, like Twitter? 
Uh, no, I'm, I'm very behind, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they can certainly email me. Um, if, especially if anybody has some, uh, some helpful copies of, uh, early zines that they would like to share. Uh, you can email me at Erica, E-R-I-C-A, Massey, M-A-S-S-E-Y, at rocketmail.com. Fantastic. And Andy, where can people find you online? Easiest place is Twitter, at First Time Trek, where I'm live tweeting through my first time through Star Trek. Grace? You can find me on Twitter, at BoneCrusherJank, and also, also my fav- personally favorite zine archive uh, tool, Barnard College actually has a pretty comprehensive list of places to look into on their website. So look that up. Jara? You can find me on Tumblr at trekkiefeminist.tumblr.com and also on Twitter at Jara Penguin. And I also may have some really, really poorly written 13 to 15 year old Law and Order fanfiction hiding somewhere on fanfiction.net. <laughs> I think we've all got something hidden in that dark recess of the internet. <laughs> I'm Sue. You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And if you do some creative searching, you can find my terrible, terrible, poorly written 13 to 15 year old fan fiction over on Trekiverse because I'm the old one. (laughs) And if you want to contact the show, you can reach Women at Warp on Twitter at Women at Warp on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Women at Warp by email at crew at womenatwarp.com or over on our website at womenatwarp.com. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.